I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. And I would say it's also very important to teach people to be on their guard against the sort of verbal booby traps into which they're always being led. Uh, to to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. Uh, Well, I think there is this whole educational side, uh, and I think there are many more things that one could do to to strengthen uh, people and to make them more aware of what was being done. Welcome back to Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's beautiful episode, I got to chat with um, personal friend, Mr. Nora Gagatis. Did I say Missa? <laughs> Miss. Miss Norga Gattis. Uh, really, really beautiful woman. She's one of my one of my favorite people to conversate with and we get to share it with you. Um, she is a board certified nutritional consultant slash neurofeedback specialist slash best-selling author um, of uh, Primal Body, Primal Mind. And uh, she's got another one coming out here in December, I believe, unless, unless something changed with that date. And so look out for that. Um, in this conversation, we get into her time living just 500 miles south of the North Pole with wolves for a summer, uh, studying them, hanging out with them. Uh, we get into her experience with uh, unwinding herself from depression through the usage of various things, but one of which being neurofeedback, which I find quite interesting, and kind of get into that. Um, as well, perspectives on how to integrate ourselves back into our guts. I think most of us have are starting to migrate away, pilgrimage away from our uh, our enteric system. Enteric being a fifty cent word for our guts, and uh, back up into our our brains, our frontal lobes. And I think that um, it would be it would be behoove us if we could really start to integrate through the rest of our bodies. And that's what we get into in this conversation. It should feel like it should be a conflict. It's a form of mental illness. Uh, the uh, the idea that we are somehow inherently separate from anything in this world is that that sense of separation is I guess what's maybe psychologists would call the egoic mind, which re- relies on on the idea that we are separate from everything else in order to function. Um, thank you so much for checking out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of videos on self-care and functional movement. You will find the self-care kit, hollow foam roller with uh, screw-on lids, a couple different size balls, myofascial release balls, uh, heavy-duty elastic band <coughs> with a door anchor. So you can adjust the height of that thing and keep your self-care practice functioning, happening, strong, sexy, beautiful. Um, every moment is an opportunity to get better in your body and in your mind, and we should be taking advantage of that, I reckon. Um, <clears throat> what else we got? I have a quote. I'm going to read a quote. This quote is from Marcel Proust, who I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name. Proust? Proust? Uh, He is the writer of, (laughs) I think it's the longest book in the world. I don't remember what it's called right now. but uh, Yeah, really long book. And the quote is, uh, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. Um, That's really, that's one one of my favorite favorite quotes out there. 
Um, and this gets into some other random things that I've been writing down throughout the week as I hear them. Another fun word you guys might like is Japanese word, ikigai. Ikigai is a concept meaning uh, a reason for being, a reason for waking up in the morning. And that's something that I see in my practice, I see with myself, I see just looking around the world, the people that are the most vital in their eyes and their skin and their, their life, all that are generally the people that have uh, delved into this ikigai aspect of themselves. And I believe that's, I don't think they have a word for retirement. I think ikigai is just how they get down with that. It's another word for in relation to retirement. Uh, in Spanish, there isn't a word, like a, just a, an isolated word for retirement. The, the word is, is jubilación or jubilation. So another thing, just changing our language, changing our perspectives, on um, on our lifestyle, you know, our, our, our words are so potent; they form and shape the way that we perceive things. So, when you say something like "I'm retiring," like "I'm tired again," uh, I think that gives a lot of people this this feeling that uh, it's time to just kind of sit in the lazy boy and start to fester away into this fetal position that we see most of us falling into. It's dilapidated houses falling apart as the weight gets heavy on our shoulders and we roll forward. I think I'm talking too much. Uh, I apologize. Thank you so much for audible.com. A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com. Uh, they are sponsoring this podcast. And uh, if you get on to audible.com slash try now, you can get yourself a free audio book, free month subscription with those guys. Costs you absolutely nothing. You can cancel anytime, no big deal. And then you get to keep the book. Uh, same thing, whenever you get a book in the future with them, you keep it. It's yours. It's not like once you stop paying them, you lose all your, all your, your data. So I think that's fantastic. The book that I would highly recommend at the moment that I'm checking out is a book called Anti-Fragile. And it is by a fellow called Nassim Nicholas Talib is his name, pretty sure. And uh, really interesting concepts in there. It's anti-fragility, which I like to think of uh, relating to the body specifically. If we can get these parts of ours to align, to stack, to integrate, then stress becomes beneficial. It grows us. Uh, but so many of us are practicing compromised positions in our physical slash mental form. And then when stress comes, we fall apart. And um, that's what we're looking for is to stack the blocks so that we become anti-fragile. Um, I What else do we have? Amazon. Dot com. If you guys can, whenever you are buying crap on the Amazon machine, um, so many people are doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, if you could get onto the Amazon link on the website, linetherapy.com, go to the blog page or the podcast page, right sidebar, it'll say Aaron recommends, and then uh, just bookmark that thing. Every time that you buy some crap, right? Anybody you know buy some crap on the Amazon, por favor. Utilize that link because Align Podcast Foundation gets about 7% of that purchase. Costs you absolutely nothing. Nothing changes for you at all. And uh, it's really helpful. And I didn't mention the uh, the introduction there was Mr. Aldous Huxley. Uh, that was back, I don't know, many years ago. And um, I thought it was poignant to think about this in relation to all things, but uh, specifically in these political times where uh, I think that 
I don't know what the heck I'm talking about, but I have a feeling that most political folks are kind of more demagogues of sorts, meaning they're just um, kind of speaking to whatever the heck is going to get them voted in. And um, so I have the tendency of looking more at body language, looking more at the sincerity in their tone and such. And so uh, words can just be so freaking misleading in this world. Uh, anything else? I spent the weekend out at Ben Greenfield's place in Washington, hanging out with him and his fam. And um, I got a podcast interview coming out with him. Uh, it should be next month, mid-December. So I'll be releasing a podcast with Ben. So look out for that. And uh, thank you so much for reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate that. It helps the algorithms know that people are enjoying the show. It is seriously, seriously helpful. And uh, it means the world to me getting to getting read them. So if you could, if you haven't already, if you could go on your phone or your computer, leave a five-star review for the Lime Podcast. It is so, so helpful. Um, I think we might we could be ready to go. We, uh, oh, one final thing. Uh, we are talking about a burlesque show in this conversation at one point. That's because the night before I was performing in a burlesque show, uh, which I had mentioned on the podcast previously, and uh, Nora and her partner had come out to the show to uh, watch me do ridiculous things. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we're referencing the show or whatever, that is that is what we're referencing. All right, here we go. Back to the shizzy with Miss Nora Gagatis. Align Podcast. Last time we were talking about your time, was it Els? Ellesmere Island. Ellesmere Island. Uh, that's a picture I took of the uh, alpha female up there. Radical. Yeah, so yeah. you were studying wolves. I was studying wolves. I was taking part in, in a long-term research project that takes place every summer up there. Cool. And uh, that is overseen by Dr. L. David Meech, and he's arguably the world's foremost scientific authority on the wolf, and he's observed them in every single environment that they live in on Earth, and he's observed them hunting every single prey species that they hunt. I think he's the only one that can say that. Wow. And he's written most of the uh, you know the big scientific you know papers on them and, and books and you know it's 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 a crazy story you know long story if you would have asked me so when I was when I was a little kid I just had this this preoccupation with wolves and I don't know where that came from it just was sort of always there I, it, I have some theories but but I'm not 100% sure why exactly wolves does it have like a you know like a like wolf medicine like Native American? Does it have some type of meaning? Of well, I I feel a very strong um, resonance with Native American sort of spiritual, um, you know, spiritual views, and uh, I I just resonate with that very strongly. That's where I get regenerated. That's my idea of churches being out in nature. Yeah. And I've always had a very strong connection with Lakota culture. And I, in, in the past, I've had a number of friends who were Lakota. I grew up in Minnesota, and there's a lot of Lakota culture there. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, I had uh, read Black Elk Speaks, you know, by John G. Nyhart, um, which was strongly influential. And 
developed an interest too in, in shamanism as you know in my teens way way the hell back when now I'm 55 years old now but it was a very long time ago and uh, just you know studied a lot of that um, you know practiced a number of things spent a lot of time doing um, I guess what they call vision quests and things spent a lot of time out in nature on my own you know just by myself out in wilderness areas and things I would go for you know a week at a time and nobody would know where I was and <laughs> whatever I just did stuff like that I don't do that stuff like that anymore um, where I live here in Oregon I, it doesn't feel as safe to me hmm. I think northern Minnesota will always feel safe to me hmm. um, but I digress so yeah, and, and I participated in a lot of sweat lodges and a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, all that is, is pretty meaningful to me. Um, I've spent some time in the Black Hills, spent some time up in Bear Butte and Mount Harney, which is one of my favorite, you know, spiritual places on Earth, yeah. which is the highest point east of the Rockies in, you know, that's where Black Elk had his great vision was Mount Harney. He called that the center of the world. I guess wherever you are, it's the center of the world. But, right. but for him, that was the most spiritually significant place. I, I feel like it's like, for me, I feel that's, a, I have, you know, kind of almost like an intentional practice of getting out in the nature and kind of unplugging from everything and letting go of, you know, like all the alerts and all that stuff. Yeah. And something that I, I feel I witness with a lot of people, myself included, is almost this dissonance between my, my natural inclinations yeah the feeling of of this separation where we've kind of created this this the separation between our true nature and this you know modernity the society that we're creating and i'll notice almost like a a, a kind of a conflict the further time that i'm oh. out of nature when i go back in i kind of feel like right. i'm a little clunkier it should <laughs> feel like it should be a conflict it's a form of mental illness uh, the uh, the idea that we are somehow inherently separate from anything in this world is that that sense of separation is I guess what's maybe psychologists would call the egoic mind, which yeah. re relies on on the idea that we are separate from everything else in order to function. Yeah. It needs time. It needs the idea of separation. I am I am me. I am not you. I am not that lamp over there or the tree or whatever else. Yeah. And therefore, anything that is not me is potentially a threat. Anything that is not me is, you know, I'm, I'm not responsible for that or I don't have to think or worry about it um, in, in terms of um, uh, having any sense of, of, of deeper responsibility, you know, right. for the world around. And, you know, Native Americans, for instance, when they, when they hunted an animal, they didn't necessarily see themselves as inherently separate from that animal they were hunting, right? right. They saw it as an extension of themselves, and there was a, like an energy exchange, yeah. a power exchange that occurred. And, and interestingly, that Native American, um, you know, traditionally in Native American culture, um, that, you know, I, I believe that, well, indigenous societies in, in general, I think have a deeper reverence for what we think of as life, although for them it was a much broader definition. In the native cosmology, everything is alive. The rocks are alive, the water, yeah. the air is alive. Everything is alive, not just the things that we tangibly look upon as moving around or having the kind of consciousness we can identify with in some way. And, uh, and to us, everything, almost everything is, is dead, you know, yeah. the way we see the world. But in their minds, 
um, there was a very, very deep reverence and, and no inherent separation from anything else that was alive. And yet, with all that reverence for life and the sacredness that they saw with which they um, uh, attributed to the animals and, and birds and, and, and insects and everything else, um, it didn't turn them into vegetarians, you know. It gave them a sense of the sacred when they when they partook of that energy exchange, and and again I see vegetarianism and veganism, for instance, as inherently part of that modern. I hesitate to use the term mental illness, and and I'm not trying to be uh, offensive when I, when I use that term, but it truly is a modern day experiment, and I and I see it as as inherently symptomatic of just how far we've become removed from the natural environment in which we live. We don't understand um, the concept of the cycle of life or our place within it anymore. And the fact is, is that, you know, there's quite a bit of evidence today to suggest that plants have an innate consciousness of their own, right? And even sentience. Um, there's lots of fascinating research out there. And, um, you know, it's, I guess it all boils down to the value you place on one form of life or over another. And whether you're assuming that the life of a plant has inherently less value than the life of an animal, for instance. Uh, I, I don't see where that makes sense. Or, or for that matter, I think we're also so disconnected with where our food comes from that we don't understand just how inherently destructive agriculture has been to uh, to life on this planet and how, how greatly it threatens life on this planet. In order for agriculture to do its thing, how does it work, it, it, at least in today's modern world? You take a plot of land with whatever ecological diversity exists on it and you wipe it clean of everything except for, and then you dig up the soil which automatically begins degrading the soil. You immediately, soil erosion and all of that starts, the de degradation of the soil quality starts the moment you put a plow to it. And then, you know, you wipe out all the other species for the sake of planting one or two that, that you're going to use, you know, for food. And you dump a whole bunch of water on it <laughs> um, of questionable quality nowadays. And in some places, even human excrement. That's always nice. Um, there are those practices. When obviously, we're talking about monoculture agriculture and a lot of the factory-oriented, you know, approaches to agriculture. But, um, uh, but still, agriculture has never been an inherently positive uh, development. I, I think even for our species, much less for the health of the planet. And yet grazing animals have always existed for millions of years before we came along. The landscapes were black with with massive herds of hundreds or thousands of animals on every continent, and those animals actually regenerated the land. They they grasslands for starters co-evolved uh, with ruminants, and if you take those ruminants off the grasslands, the grasslands die. They rely on the ruminants to come through and trample and munch on it, and when you trim back, you know, a plant, it tends to deepen and and fortify the root system and then you have the little hooves poking in and water's able to get in there and it, the roots hold it better because the roots are healthier and then the animal is of course defecating all over that and that creates fantastic fertilizer and then the predators come along and make the ruminants nervous and they move off to a new area 
and allow that area just to naturally regenerate over time. You know, it's not fires that regenerate the land uh, in the best way. It's the ruminants yeah. that do that. And so um, we've, we've, we took the, an the animals. First, we went off and killed the predators, like wolves. <laughs> and then we took the ruminants off the land, and we put them in pens and, and subjected them to unnatural lives. And I think that has become the ill that is, you know, the meat industry now. 97% of all the meat produced is produced through these factory farming and, you know, CAFO, you know, sort of, yeah. um, you know, feedlot practices. And that's another form of insanity that, you know, we have to, as a, I think, culture learned to say no to. Um, we need to understand that if we're not eating the meat of an animal that has been fed naturally, then, I mean, the, the health of the meat in our diets um, you know, how healthy meat is for us is directly correlates to the health of the animal that meat came from. Mm -hmm. And um, in my mind, the, the bottom line should be health and sustainability. And it's, it's something that is not being practiced in, in significant part because, number one, it's, it's not as profitable for the powers that be that are, that are running these operations but also mainly because we're not demanding it. Right. And every time we go and we spend money on anything, we're voting with what we want. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I really want to make the case as much as humanly possible that we cannot compromise on food quality. Yeah. You know, I, I have a new book coming out around the first of the year, and, and in it I really talked a lot about food quality being an essential part of the equation that we have to demand organic that means organic, and that we have to, when, when we buy meat, it, it's gotta be 100% grass-fed and finished. And the publisher was a little bit skittish about that. And they're like, well, but not everybody can afford that. And, you know, we, we should just say, do the best you can. It's like, no, no. I, I do believe it can be fully affordable, if, if you're, certainly if you're eating the way I describe, which is not to excess, right? It's it's moderating that protein intake, which is number one the most monetarily expensive, and um, yeah. and then you know and then as many fibrous vegetables and greens as you want, minimizing the sugar and starch that keeps us perpetually hungry and eating more anyway, and generating insulin, which is only going to age us and kill us faster, um, and then as much fat as you want uh, or feel like you need in order to satisfy your appetite from a variety of natural sources, including animal source foods. Um, it's how we were designed. This is what we've been doing. Um, these are the, these are the uh, dietary inclusions that shaped our physiological makeup, that shaped our nutritional requirements. And we've been told for a you know, better part of 100 years or, or more now that, oh, you know, animal fats are bad. They're not. Um, whatever deleterious effects they've ever demonstrated has always been in the presence of high-carbohydrate diets. Mm. We can't have it both ways. They don't pair well together. Sugar, starches, and fats don't pair well together. Um, and so if you have to make a choice uh, to be optimally healthy, it's far better to err on the side of something that there's actually a dietary requirement for. Right. There is no human dietary requirement for carbohydrates of any kind. But I think that, I personally believe that we, we live in a time and in a state of environmental compromise 
that makes many fibrous plant-based foods and greens and things a lot more valuable to us than they ever probably used to be during our earlier evolutionary history. In other words, they don't supply us with a lot of calories. We don't have the digestive tract to make use of all of the nutrition contained within them, but we are able to make use of many of the phytonutrients and antioxidants and things like that contained within them in, that have the potential to be detoxifying and provide some bulk that can help bind with you know, xenoestrogens and things like that and help those pass through our body a little more readily. And um, not everybody can tolerate the fibrous plant foods if you have uh, really bad dysbiosis or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth you're probably just going to make that worse by eating those fibers but the problem isn't the plant foods it's the problem is that condition which you just have to correct but that, that's something I wanted to I want to get into for sure you mentioned insanity yeah. and, and uh, there's a quote I, I'm pretty sure it's Eckhart Tolle but he said uh, mankind's greatest accomplishment isn't like spaceships and technology and all that um, it's beginning to recognize our own insanity. Mm. You know, this, this break away from ourselves is right. the way that I, I, I perceive it. I, I see insanity in much the same way. I see it as a lack of self-information. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's being unconscious. It's living unconsciously. It's living in the past, it's living in the future, and being oblivious to what's happening around us. And, and uh, oblivious to, um, you know, to, to what actually, you know, support, supports and sustains our life. You know, we're, we're acting as though we can do anything we want to the very planet that sustains us. And, you know, th this is a very limited model of sustainability. Sure. It's, we really are running very much the risk of, um, of seeing an end to our species. And I think the only thing that has any hope of changing that is evolving into a consciousness of, of, of here and now, yeah. evolving into a consciousness of, of being just simply aware of what's going on around us and understanding that that, that that matters and not just being in our heads all the time. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's like when you look at someone else and you're like, oh, that woman's such a bitch, or whatever. It's like, oh, it's usually some insecurity or, you know, reflection back into your own self. Right. And so I think when we're treating the earth this way or our city this way or our peers, you know, some way, right. it's a reflection Trans of how we're, we're feeling. Exactly. And so that's the interesting yes. thing when we see, like, you know, I think there's this dissonance or separation between uh, we're now kind of operating from this more computer technology realm, you yeah. know, and the lack of usage of kind of our whole animal limbic system and right. getting into our guts and kind of now it's like we have this distrust around a gut feeling because a gut feeling that's just a bunch of woo-woo nonsense. Like, no, no, no. Like, well, well, gut so, feeling is useful if we know how to interpret it. The problem is, is that um, we are so disconnected mm -hmm. from our, um, from our, from our bodies, disconnected from the world around us. Um, and from our own, you know, from our own senses, that you know, some people will say, "Well, I just, I just, you know, I just listen to my body and it tells me what it needs." Well, I don't know that I necessarily trust that because some people's bodies tell them it needs beer, right. <laughs> you yeah, know, or sugar or, sugar or whatever. Yeah. And so, how do we separate out the the right signals from the wrong wrong signals? I actually think that diet uh, plays an extremely foundational role in in this evolution of consciousness movement that we are actually now seeing. Sure. Um, because honestly, uh, 
we see the world through a lens that is our hormones, our neurotransmitters, the degree to which we choose to be dependent on it, our blood sugar, you know. And if, if those things are off, the way in which we view the world around us is off. How we interpret what goes on around us is off. If you wake up in the morning and, you know, you're, you're a sugar burner, right? You're relying on sugar as your primary source of fuel and you're hypoglycemic. Right. You're going to feel like crap. You're going to feel irritable and cranky, and you're going to look at the world around you through that lens. And it's human nature to want to, it's just sort of unconsciously, usually, ask oneself, huh, why do I feel like this? And ask a stupid question, you're going to get a stupid answer. Well, it's because life sucks. It's because my job sucks. It's because this person sitting next to or laying next to me sucks or, yeah. you know, whatever else sucks. And uh, we're looking for ways of attaching meaning to that, but not really looking at what the biochemical forces are that are driving. I mean, emotions are simply biochemical storms in the body and brain. And they do so much to shape how it is we choose to interpret the world around us. And so, you know, at any given moment, we all have things we can feel immensely grateful for, immensely happy about, excited about. Um, and we also have things we could be really stressed over or ticked off about or whatever have you. And what it is we choose to focus on directly correlates to just exactly what kind of lens we're seeing the world through in that moment. And there's nothing that regulates that lens um, more reliably than what it is we choose to put in our mouths because that's what forms the basis of all our biochemistry. Every single hormone, every single neurotransmitter, every single biochemical reaction in the human body is dependent upon the raw materials that we supply that with, all of it. And if we're choosing to supply those biochemical processes with Twinkies and beer, or we're rationalizing with whatever else, uh, everything in moderation, which we don't have that wiggle room anymore, I'm sorry, that that ship has sailed. Right. We're not living in that era. Um, then uh, you know it's going. You're going to be fighting against your own biological current to try to keep a positive mindset. You know what I mean? To have that a positive attitude toward life and to have a positive attitude. We we all feel like we have to work at that. It shouldn't have to work at that. It should be something that comes a lot more naturally when things are flowing the way they're supposed to, when our homeostatic mechanisms are functioning, you know, or homeodynamic, perhaps, mechanisms are functioning within, um, you know, within a positive range. Yeah. Um, so I think that it really ends up, I mean, I, I have a, a very strong passion for this whole consciousness thing. Uh, uh, especially as, as, as time goes by more and more. I think it's incredibly important, but I also recognize the power of our dietary choices in shaping that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think it's always, it's like, the, you know, the question that I ask myself a lot is like, well, is it chicken or the egg? You know, did this emotional thing create that structural pattern or did the food thing create that structural pattern? Because, you know, we eat whatever crummy thing which made us feel anxious or tired or whatever. Now we're slouching over. But I, I right. think the answer is always it's always the chicken or sometimes the chicken, sometimes the egg. Right, right. You know, there's no or some or some interplay between the or two. Both. Right? right. Because we also, you know, we have, you know, there are like what five major corporations now that own all of the media that own all the print media, the, the televised, the radio media, etc. And those, and, and you know, these same, you know, corporate structures have a profound influence over how our educational system is set up, what is being taught, how things are being taught, 
what we're learning and what we're what they don't want us to learn. <laughs> um, and so there is all of that. And all of these industries seem to be interdependent now. Everything from medical and pharmaceutical industry to the uh, big agribusiness. And of course, it's the number one the big agribusiness is the number one customer for big oil. So that has, uh, you know, an inherent interest in all of that. And then, of course, we have the food industry and the weight loss industry and all of these things that are kind of benefiting from the status quo, yeah. from things moving. And so we're encouraged to think about things in a certain way. And, you know, there there really is kind of a matrix that uh, the degree to which we elect to be unconscious and just sort of allow these images that that fill our heads and these um, these ideas of ourselves as being separate from everything else. Um, we're forever going to fall prey, I think, to uh, to those that would basically profit from that unconsciousness. Sure. And and it becomes self perpetuating. We feel you know, like you say, anxious and unhappy with our lives. And then we turn on the TV and it tells us because we're not shopping enough, you know, we're not going out and we're not buying enough stuff. And we have people because they don't have their essential identities, their, their essential uh, sense of self with the big S, you know, intact. They're constantly looking to fill the empty hole with whatever, be it food or or alcohol or whatever whatever drugs or food or I already said food um, or shopping you know or whatever uh, retail indulgences and it's 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 insanity and and we're raping pillaging and plundering the planet to fill a hole that can never be filled yeah now so uh, so there, there's a lot in place and a lot, I think, of conventional institutions, everything from you know, religion to politics and whatever, and all of the things that have a role to play in keeping us feeling separate from one another, uh, it all gets reinforced through those things. And uh, so from the time that we're born, we learn to forget very quickly about you know, you know, the hole that we came from, and we're taught that everything is compartmentalized. I mean, the whole entire what we call healthcare system, which is really little more than a disease managed system, management system, is in is in trouble in part because it, it's a profit based system, um, and it also is largely based on this Newtonian, you know, five hundred year old or whatever Newtonian model of science that tells us that everything in our body is a collection of parts that are separate from each other and don't really relate to anything else. And medicine itself is broken into com compartmentalizations. You have psychiatrists over here and gastroenterologists over there, and then you have cardiologists here and oncologists there, and you have this and that and the other thing going on, and as as if these things had nothing to do with one another. Yeah. Um, if you have an autoimmune thyroid condition, and uh, you don't know that's what's going on, but you go to one practitioner and, and they see that you have thyroid symptoms. So, oh, you need to go talk to an endocrinologist. We'll put you on thyroid hormone. And oh, by the way, I feel kind of anxious and depressed. Oh, we'll send you to the psychiatrist over here. And oh, by the way, I seem to have digestive issues and whatever. Oh, well, then there's the gastroenterologist over there. 
and you know before too long you're you're loading up on prescriptions and maybe the underlying issue is ultimately that your thyroid disorder is actually an autoimmune thyroid disorder uh, which is having wholly systemic effects that are triggering every one of those symptoms and there's no such thing as a medical autoimmunologist mm. because that it's too systemic uh, I think a, um, a, a uh, paradigm everything else is easy to compartmentalize but when you have an autoimmune condition you, you have an autoimmune thyroid condition your primary problem isn't thyroid it's immune yeah. and it's got to be dealt with on that level and you have to look at the things that initiate and drive that process and you have to understand the way all of these different symptoms interrelate. And the system itself, the medical system, is just not set up to look at things that way. Yeah. Functional medicine is closer to being there, but it's still. I mean, the, the darling of functional medicine today is bioidentical hormones. And just don't even get me started on that topic. Unless, unless there is no other choice, I think, that those, uh, it, it's, it's a mistake to go that route. So, um, you know, if you have depressed thyroid function, you are going to have to do something with, with, uh, to, to shore that up. But the focus should always be on restoring healthy function wherever possible. How, so, you know, I can think of a million things that people can do from a movement perspective to start reintegrating with themselves. Right. From, you know, what about recultivating a relationship with your gut biome, you know, right, right. That, that relationship. Like, well, you yeah, better, like, it outnumbers you. <laughs> so like, what's, is there, is there some, you know, is there, like, where do people start with that? It's just developing a relationship, you know, and really being like, yeah, like I, I really understand that food is information. I really just like, oh exactly. no, I'm not going to eat cheesecake for breakfast. That's right. what some people in the band from the, right. the, the, the uh, burlesque show from last night, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go to the forest for cheesecake. I'm like, that sounds horrible. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, so you really, go right. Have I at think it. That's a bad know? decision, but enjoy. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, how do how do we start to to cultivate a relationship that I am empowered with my food? I'm not just at the whim of the food. Well, it's it's being aware that you are. I mean, it's 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 not. I mean, you don't have to cultivate the belief. You just have to to cultivate the awareness that yeah, you know, you're you're in control of what you put in your mouth. As hard as you know the. Uh, um, you know the the multinational interests and the politicians that work for them are, yeah, are working right. to, to take those choices away from us we still have some measure of control over what it is we choose to put in our mouths and we need to understand that we have to develop a relationship with that now that relationship has been colored by so many things and you mentioned the gut biome I mean, so it, it out, actually outnumbers human cells by about, you know, 20 to 1 or, or, or 10 to 1, rather. You know, we have about 20 trillion cells that make up, you know, the, the human body in terms of the cells that hold our so-called physical matrix together. Mm. But then we've got like 100 trillion of these critters. I mean, like 99% of all the DNA in our body isn't even human, right. you know? And so... And Which it's makes very it human inherently. Well, you know? yeah, well, exactly. You know, <laughs> all of these ecosystems I mean, is the human. We're we're not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not a single thing. We are a, a community of things because yeah. we have each of the cells in our body is its own life form, right? So, what actually defines life? It's not the collection of living parts. It's the communication between them. Yeah. You know, 
And, um, and that's the microcosm. The macrocosm is that this extends out to our relationship to every other living thing on Earth. Countries. You can see, build, build the borders up, create the separation, linearity. Like, we, we're here, we're separate from, you know, right. Kenya or freaking China or whatever. It's like, that's right. what if we communicated? Right. Oh, I know. Well, <laughs> well it, would take, it would take a lot of power away from people who are profiting extremely heavily. I mean, the, let's, you know, the military-industrial complex it feeds off of that whole notion of, of separation and uh, that whole idea of us versus them, yeah. the divide and conquer. You know, it's the oldest war tactic uh, on earth. Um, although, you know, I will point out that full-scale war, uh, very, very different from uh, the kind that was, that was sometimes experienced between indigenous uh, groups uh, is something we didn't have until we had agriculture, until we had sure. what we called civilization. You know, right. this is not, it is not human nature to go to war. It's the, the kinds of wars that were held between indigenous um, tribes and things were so different. And, and so, you know, generally um, isolated, um, you know, instances by nature and, and you know, based on, on things that were nowhere near as full scale as what, it is that we exercise today. This is not human nature. This is something contrived. Um, it's it's being driven by by profit more than anything, sure. and not driven by who we are as human beings. Um, and again, it's it's unconscious human beings, right? Uh, people that are conscious and, and are aware of the you know the essential interrelationship of everything and everyone just don't have any inclination to go to war with anybody. Yeah. So it's the degree to which we're man manipulated into into the us versus them, as the Pink Floyd lyric goes. Um, uh, probably my favorite Pink Floyd song, but anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that it's the it's like the, a pathological hoarding of goods. Again, we are you know a, a reflection of how we are interacting with with Earth and we you know in government, et cetera, et cetera. And we do a similar thing with repression of our emotional expression. We right. don't really have a, a firm understanding of like communication, dance, sing, sex, like whatever it is. You yeah. know, learn to use connections, your words. right? And that translates into you know I think a similar concept of like hold on to the money, hold on to the goods, hold on. It's like it's mine. It's not. If if there would be a way to start to ease up a little bit of that, I think if it stemmed from at an individual level of things flow through me, I'm not so sticky. Yeah. You know, I think maybe it would it would reference out to the goods as well. Yeah, the ego consciousness is a, is an insecure creature, and it it feels constantly as though there's not enough. Right. You know that I have mine, you get yours, yeah. someplace else. You know, uh, the haves and the have-nots, etc. And um, you know, again, it's 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 not a sustainable mentality, and it is it is a mass form of mental illness that yeah. we have and but it's normal because it's everybody it's normal <laughs> it's, it's an well system, yeah it, so it's it's like, oh. it's not necessarily normal but it is common it is as commonplace as it gets right. but things aren't necessarily normal simply because they're common no i think the native americans on this continent and i remember and I, I can't remember the quote now but I, I remember there was some chief just talking about you know the white europeans coming to this continent and and we're just and he was befuddled. He says, I, they seem so restless. They are looking for something. I don't know what they're looking for. Right. They just seem crazy to me. Yeah. You know? And um, 
you know, rather than being taking a moment just to be grateful for what we have and and being mindful that of of um, you know that that of being responsible for what it is that we take and what it is that we leave, and it's it's you know we're like we've become almost like um, almost like a cancer growth, mm-hmm. you know, where. You know, normal healthy cells, they, they know how to differentiate, they know how to work together and communicate, and then there are these prokaryotic-like cells that suddenly just, all of a sudden, they just start proliferating and devouring everything around them, and it's ultimately destructive to them, yeah. but is it takes off like a freight train and just starts growing like the malignancy that it is, and it's sort of what we have done and what we're doing. Now, you know, I personally think that, that uh, in, in plenty of instances, cancer can be reversible, and I think this one can be too, but I think there's got to be a certain tipping point of people understanding that, um, that consciousness matters, you right. know, that, um, that reforging our, our it, it developing a fundamental state of awareness matters and can change everything almost in the blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. There was a. I I think it was. I'm gonna mess up all the names and reference, but what he said was was accurate, or at least what I read. I think it was Cortez when he was coming in contact with like the Aztecs or the Mayans. Or they whatever. were crazy. The yeah. Aztecs were, but yeah. Well, so what what he, what he what he said to him was um, that the white man are like, why do you want all this gold? Like, what do you care? It's just a stupid metal. Like, relax. And, he's, <laughs> and he's, he's, he said that the the white man's sick and the only way to 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 heal the the sickness was was through gold yeah seemingly and, yeah right yeah and it's like it's like an no, i was pretty well feeding of, it but anyway right yeah you know but you you worked with did you work with a psychiatric hospital with with food or was that did i did i make that up you made that up. I made that up. Yeah, yeah. I thought you did something in relation to somewhere around here maybe i read that maybe someone else made it up and i read it or something but the but the, the Regardless, <laughs> the, the correlation between again, like the the food is information. Is there somewhere like well, tangible I, place for people to start? Again, it's going to be a little different for everybody based on whatever their where the imbalances in their body are. And you know, I start with a lot of testing and whatever to try to figure out, you know, where is that particular person's biochemistry imbalanced? I mean, I have certain foundational. Um, there are certain foundational things that I recommend for pretty much everybody. You know, minimizing the sugar and starch, moderating the protein, using uh, fat from the best quality, natural, including animal source foods, and um, and making sure you're getting a good variety of those fats to and fat-soluble nutrients, which gets overlooked in that equation, um, to kind of get your your base is in order, you know, the foundations in order. To me, that's an essential starting place. And food, of course, in a form that is in the best, uh, most strongest alignment with our genetic makeup, um, with our genetic evolutionary makeup. So food that is in its most natural um, state in terms of being not pesticided, not, you know, overly, um, you know, not genetically modified, not you know, overly treated with anything, not shot full of hormones and antibiotics and fed gum wrappers and whatever the hell they feed livestock. But uh, animals that, you know, the meat from an- and fat from animals that have been um, fed as naturally as possible using natural forage the way that they 
their ancestors would have gotten it out in nature um, and not stuff from feedlots. Grains aren't any more natural to cattle than they are to us. And um, again, organic-based foods, and whether that means growing it in your own backyard or going to farmer's markets. But again, a lot of what it takes to restore health in in uh, in the body is also what it takes to restore health in our in our society is forging relationships forging community mm -hmm. getting to know developing more of a first-hand knowing of where your food comes from right and 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 being knowing that you can be comfortable with that right and and that it's ethically and sustainably and healthfully produced um, and this does not have to be absurdly expensive. I think that's another bill of goods we've been sold uh, by the industries that would profit, uh, you know, f you know, from our mistakes. Is the idea that in order to be health healthy, you have to have uh, a ton of money. Right. That you can't you can't eat well if you are poor, and that's just not true. Um, there's a friend of mine who wrote a book called Primal Tightwad. And uh, it was actually when I begged her to write because she's the smartest person I've ever met in terms of she's she's very very smart anyway but but she has this special passion for how inexpensively she can possibly live mm -hmm. you know and she's a lot more fun to be with than you'd think <laughs> based on that um, and she knows to the penny what she spends on money every single month or what, what she spends on food every single month she knows exactly right. and she came to visit a few summers ago and we hung out we had a great time and she was telling me how god this is the least expensive way i've ever found to eat it's just so awesome and she was telling me about just how much money she was saving compared to the way she used to eat etc cetera, etc cetera. and she was had never been healthier in, in her life and I found myself sinking to one knee and, and clasping my hands and saying, will you please write a book and will you please call it Primal Tightwad? She's good with words and okay. all that. And so she said, well, okay. And so she wrote it. It's an e-book. It's available. Yeah. And one of the brilliant things that she did was she went in there and she took a week's worth of menu from the standard American diet which is the form of eating everybody thinks that they're kind of stuck with, right? Because they don't think they can afford anything better. Right. I mean, that's the excuse anyway. It's like, well, you know, yeah, I can't... I mean, who can afford to shop at Whole Foods anyway? But anyway. Um, that part's and, kind of true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that part. But but that's how people define it, right? We're taught to think of, well, if, if we're going to eat better food, we have to go to these swanky... To to like, right. It's, right. It's, that's, cra that's another insanity. But, you know, yeah. So, anyway, she went and she took a week's worth of menu, and she calculated down to the last penny what it was going to cost, tablespoon of ketchup, two cents, or, you know, whatever, all the way down for a whole week, I believe it was. And then she took a week's worth of menu from the kind of diet that I talk about and, and that she was eating, and she calculated all that out down to the last penny. And I was perfectly prepared to accept the idea that it might be more expensive to eat the better diet, you know. But then, you know, you can also say, well, uh, think of what you're saving long term in yeah, terms of healthcare costs. You know all that. You know what it costs you, you know, emotionally and whatever. Right. You know, bad diagnosis, etc. The opportunities that you miss by being bags under your eyes or being tired yeah. or being anxious or whatever, you just never manifest that opportunity right. with that thing because you're not in a place to create. Right. And, and and I was prepared to 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 approach it from that argument, but but as it turns out, once everything was tallied up, not only was it less expensive out of pocket to eat the way I'm talking about, 
but it actually worked out to be close to $1,500 per person per year less expensive. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. And when you consider that, you know, the number one cause of bankruptcy now in the United States is a bad diagnosis, yeah, exactly. right? Um, then I don't care what your health care benefits look like. You can't afford, I don't know anybody that can truly afford to be sick. And there was a re another recent study published that, that showed that 95% of the world's population today, not just U.S., the, the whole world, has at least one ailment with more than a third having um, at least five. Mm. Um, we're not living in the world of our ancestors anymore. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not living Western price anymore. We're living in a time that is infinitely more threatening and hostile, and yet we're sort of lulled into this false sense of complacency because we live in lovely climate-controlled environments, yeah. you know, with nice soft couch, and you take two steps in any direction, and there's something you can reach for to put in your mouth, and you don't even have to get your ass off the couch. You can just call Domino's, and they'll deliver the pizza right to your lap on the couch if you want, as long as the door is unlocked. Yeah. I mean, and so we think we've got it good. And, you know, the, the, the comment I made at, um, um, you know, during my talk at, at AHS this year was that, you know, we're like these proverbial boiling frogs that think we've got it made in the shade, that we're sitting in some hot tub in Vegas, you know, or something like that. Um, and, or, you know, we think, you know, we think we're sitting in a hot tub in Vegas um, when we're just, the flesh is boiling off our bones and yeah. we just don't see it. But again, it's, everything's relative, you know, so if, if everyone yeah. is in this, you know, if we're all boiling and it's like, a little hot in here, huh? No, it feels fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. You know, so it's <laughs> Water's great. Come on in. <laughs> but it's 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 the willingness to it's the willingness to actually start to start to you know finagle and start to test and start to pull things out and put things in and kind of really see. Same thing with relationships. I think you know it's it's not until you leave the circumstance that you're in that you're really actually able to see where you were at. Right. You know, most of us we inherently I think we're almost like inculcated with this this fear around leaving you know it's, it's there's oh there, well i don't know am i getting a job am i gonna meet people you know whatever it is yeah you know, but as you do it you kind of your skin gets you know thicker or maybe more permeable depending on how you see it you know but or you more sensitive to, to what's yeah, going exactly. on around you right yeah you just you, <laughs> right. di you dial in and it's like oh right. okay right. um and you know there there are plenty of people i think that that um that are not drowning in those illusions you know uh you got to be willing to take the red pill but it's not that scary a step really no, no. Um, you you dealt with um pretty serious depression for a I did. time yes yeah. that do you have any sense of what the hell that is yeah i do as a matter of fact <laughs> okay. i gave a talk at paleo fx last year um and, uh, you know, that's always obviously been a subject near and dear to my heart because it almost totally defined who I was for about 35 years of my life. And from the time I was a little kid, um, you know, I, look, I go through and I look at all the old photo, family photo albums and things like that. I've got a lot of big things happening in my family right now, and I find myself thinking a lot about my childhood. And, um, and I almost every picture, I just, I look sad. There's something a little bit sad. And even when I'm smiling, there's just something a little sad. Right. And I realized I was just a really kind of depressed kid, and I felt very disconnected from people around me, certainly. And, you know, my, you know, the, 
you know, as as most people's family of origin stuff was just a little bit batshit crazy. You know, it was it was it was a stressful home to grow up in for me. Um, but I think the only place I ever felt any sense of connectedness was out in nature, and that's where I spent almost all my time. But nonetheless, I was chronically melancholy and really didn't know what that was about. Spent a lot of time wishing I hadn't been born and whatever. Mm. And by the time I hit adolescence and, you know, those hormones start going and and uh, there's that whole other sort of insecure sense of self that develops that awkwardness of, you know, adolescence and whatever. I just, I started having suicidal ideation. And that was, you know, it, it there would be, to a greater or lesser extent, there was this chronic dysthymia. Sometimes it was full-blown, really serious depression where it was like scary, where I mm. just was really thinking a lot about killing myself. And uh, and then I would go through, I, I sometimes described it as like swimming with ankle weights on, yeah. uh, where I could kind of get up ahead of steam from time to time and fight my way to the surface to get a few gulps of air and get some traction, and, you know, make it a certain distance in my life with whatever. Usually it were things that I felt passionate about that got me going, you know, that I just felt like I had to do or whatever. And then eventually I'd start to feel that familiar old tug, you know, I'd feel the weight of that start to pull me back under. And I'd go back down and under and and be depressed again for a while and not be able to accomplish very much and then suddenly, you know, fight my way back to the surface and that was just a pattern. And And as I got older, uh, those bouts of getting pulled under were just longer and longer. They were less predictable. Um, where when I was younger, I certain things kind of would throw me into a predictable tailspin. I'd have a big argument with my father or something, and it would be right. like, okay, I that I just knew I was going to be derailed for a few weeks or months or whatever. Um, but after a while, it became less predictable. I would just wake up one morning and just not even feel like getting out of bed or doing anything. And I wouldn't know where that came from. So I was, about the time I got to about the age 13, back in those days, if you were depressed, it was seen as a psychological disorder, right? You go and you talk to somebody about your problems and uh, they help you sort that through and then you feel better and go on with your life. Well, I wouldn't ever belittle that kind of work because I think there's great value to be gotten from really high quality psychotherapy, especially with somebody who's actually done their own work, yeah. <laughs> which is a big problem sometimes, finding somebody like that. But um, I sought out a school counselor because I didn't know where else to turn. And um, he was actually, he was, a, he was a really good guy, and he gave me a sounding board for a lot of things I was struggling with at the time. And I mostly got relief in being able to talk to, about things, but I never really learned that much about myself, other than uh, I think at that time in my life I was much more passive and allowed people to walk all over me and whatever. I got teased a lot and, and, and um, you know, I was the, uh, you know, the ugly duckling that got, got, got picked on at school and had things done to my locker and, and I got, you know, taunted so much on the school buses I had to walk to school every day and stuff, so. How are you ugly? You seem quite... Pretty, oh, I, mean, I think. But, but, well, but, I thank like, you, but yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So, I have some, you know, basic um, things that came with, you know, like getting a decent haircut and, you know, whatever. There were there were small things that I did to change my appearance in my teens that suddenly changed how everyone saw me, mm. and 
I never forgot that lesson, actually. Right. I was the same person one day to the next, and suddenly suddenly I was being asked out on dates, and suddenly every, even you know, girls wanted to be my friend, and it's like, where did this come from? I, you know, none of you wanted anything to do with me last week. I was the same person. So, um, you know, and I just, you know, you make some basic changes to how you present yourself to the world, and it changes everyone's perception of you, even if when you're no different. Yeah, so, but yeah, it, I, I was, I was kind of this nerd, and, uh, and just not really, I was the last person to get picked for the sports teams and, and get, got picked on a lot and all of that. And, you know, I've, I'm over it now. But after many years of high-quality psychotherapy and a couple yeah. hundred neurofeedback sessions, yeah, I'm right. feeling much better now. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't have those same insecurities anymore. But, um, but I learned a lot uh, from those experiences. But anyway, so... Yeah, it was, um, I used to be quite a bit more of a passive personality. I don't think of myself as an aggressive personality now, but I, I speak my mind and I'm prepared to assert myself when it's appropriate to do that. Um, and I don't, I just don't roll over and pretend that stuff isn't happening when it is. And, um, and I, you know. I've done a lot of work to get to where I am. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But depression in my teens was just was miserable, and and into college it was, you know, it was it was torture. But it also drove me. There's something inherent in my nature that makes me driven toward the idea that there's always an answer. There's always a way out. There's always another way of of looking at things or of seeing things. I just knew that. I, I believe there was some fundamental flaw in my in in my personality or in me somewhere that if maybe a psychologist or psychiatrist could help me figure out what that was, then everything would be better and I would have friends and I would you know feel better about life and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I was driven to find answers and I knew that it didn't have to be that way. Somehow I knew it didn't have to be that way, and that's what kept me alive. And then in college I developed. Um, a passion for uh, nutrition and I realized that I could play around with certain supplements and certain uh, nutrients and things and that could change it could shift the way I felt on a particular day I could play around with that stuff and it could make a difference and I was kind of hooked pretty quickly on that and I started out with an interest mainly in supplements, more so than food. I kind of came at it from the other way. And um, to this day, I could walk into a health food store, pull almost any supplement off the shelf, and talk an hour about about it. But that's not really my focus so much anymore. I'm, I'm much more into, I shifted to a focus, you know, in more recent years, and recent decades, on more foundational concepts. You know, what are the... And, and the evolutionary approach to thing, that whole ancestral perspective, um, seemed to me the most rational starting place. And then from there, you know, we nuance it based on um, what we've come to understand about human longevity research and, and also what we need to compensate for relative to the kind of world we live in today yeah. because we don't live in that world of our ancestors anymore. So it all got driven in that direction. but. 
but you know that that depressive you know weight on my shoulders was something that really drove me to ask a lot of questions I otherwise never would have asked and I did all this deep inner spiritual work and spent time sitting in mountain and mountaintops and in, in remote areas of the wilderness by myself and I did lots of psycho really you know some of it really good psychotherapy um, I did um, I tried acupuncture I tried you know I did um, I read all kinds of self-help books I spent a week working with Tony Robbins I did all right. these different things and everything kind of added a dimension everything added a piece you know the nutrition thing was obviously a big part of that there was just there were all these different things and yet there was still this physiological underpinning that was still depression that kept me in kind of this chronic state of angst and I just was still determined to figure it out and eventually I, I stumbled across um, an article on this new emerging field it was it w what used to be called Omni magazine I don't know if you're old enough to remember Omni yeah. it was an awesome magazine I wish it would come back but it was uh, just a very hip very cool science magazine way back in the day and there was an article, and I, to this day I wish I remember what the name of that article was or anything else about it, but it talked about this new emerging field of neurotechnology and this idea that, you know, the foundational concept of the brain being more than just this hodgepodge of psychological constructs and more than just simply a vessel of chemical soup, but that it's also bioelectric. And that if we can, and if the bioelectric activity of the brain is off, well, and the timing of the brain is off, you know, with that bioelectric activity. So is the functional biochemistry likely to be? Because, um, you know, when a neuron fires or whatever, you know, that, that depolarization of the cell, you know, is, you know, is driven in part by, by electrolytes and by other things. And that, that t it's intimately dependent on these timing mechanisms in order for everything to work right. And if those timing mechanisms are off, lots of stuff is going to be off. And the way the theoretical model worked is if you could go in there and improve, um, kind of restore healthy timing, whatever, to the brain, that you would go a long way toward restoring normalcy to everything else too. And there was something inherent in that that seemed foundationally significant to me and, and fascinated me. And I knew I was on to something intuitively, and I just went with it. And based on that article, I started making phone calls to every expert that was named in the art you know and all of the technologies mentioned and I just started researching and this was pre-internet so I'm making phone calls you know and I finally uh, you know I, I made connections with some of the right people and I got a hold of a mind tool uh, that I still actually that I still promote a lot um, it's the company now calls itself mind alive it used to be called Comtronics and it's a light and sound machine the David digital audiovisual integration device of course invented by a guy named David Seaver of course too and uh, he's a really good friend of mine now but uh, that tool it works kind of like a pacemaker for the brain you kind of plug in what you want it to do and it just takes your brain there yeah. like you want to do 20 minutes and 10 Hertz Alpha um, and rather than spending 20 years learning how to meditate like a Zen monk you just press a couple of buttons and now in, tw in 20 minutes, you know, your brain is just there. Mm. Now, do I think that's it's a substitute for meditation? No. But it does yield some very interesting effects. There are some really cool things you can do 
with this tool if you know how to use it right. And I got some very interesting effects and mood changes that I started to experience. And so I knew I was on to something and I became interested in the entire field of neurotechnology. And at the time, there was a quarterly journal called the Megabrain Report, terrible name, but it was edited in part by this by this brilliant um, journalist by the name of Michael Hutchison. And his interest was just so, just focused on the entire field of neurotechnology. And it was so cool that he was doing what he did. Because all of these different areas, you had the light and sound people over here, you had the CES people over here, you had the Gansfield people here, and the motion systems, and the um, you know vibroacoustic systems over here, and then you have neurofeedback over there, and all these different fields, um, you know, float tanks, etc., that really weren't paying attention to each other. And he was bringing all that together and getting, you know, kind of figuring out how these things kind of uh, were interwoven, how the research in these different fields, you know, really uh, were interwoven or at least should be. And then he published this journal. And I subscribed to that journal and devoured every issue that came along and finally just ordered every back issue and read all those. And then one day, and I was just interested in the mind tools, the kinds of things you could buy and own and play with. And there was one issue that was devoted to nothing but, it was then called EEG biofeedback. Today we call it mostly neurofeedback. And I thought, oh man, I'm not interested in that. You have to go to a clinic for that. I don't really want, you know, whatever. I, I want the stuff I can buy and play with at home. And I'm thumbing through it because I just, I had to read every issue, but I was disappointed at the, at the subject matter of the issue. And there was an article written by a man by the name of Dr. Siegfried Othmer called EEG Biofeedback, A Journey to Autonomy. And it was one of the most brilliant things I'd ever read. And I read that article and I thought, I would give anything to just spend an afternoon talking with this man. I mean, it was, I wasn't even so much fascinated by what he had to say as by the man that wrote it because this was clearly somebody with both sides of his brain firing on all cylinders. He wasn't just an intellectual. Right. Um, the guy's literally a rocket scientist, but he's um, one of the greatest geniuses I've ever known. And, um, and it was like less than a year later, I had a chance meeting with him, and we ended up becoming the best of friends. And, you know, he's still just so dear to me to this day, I could just, my heart glows like E.T. when I think about him. Um, he's been one of the most important influences of my life. And it was him that encouraged me to pursue the field of neurofeedback. And uh, he just said, Nori, we were at three o'clock in the morning, we were sitting in Michael Hutchison's living room talking. And he said, Nori, you belong in this field, you know? And, you know, this is, this is an exciting frontier and Columbus is, you know, is leaving for the new world. You want to be on the boat, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, and he encouraged me to get my own training you know, to do, go through my own, you know, uh, number, however many sessions I needed to get my brain on track. And it was literally after session number two for me. I came back to Minneapolis. I found a wonderful man by the name of John Anderson who runs the Minnesota Neurotherapy Institute, one of my favorite humans walking loose on the planet. And he uh, devised a protocol for me. And it was literally after session number two, I believe, that what had been a lifetime of helplessness and hopelessness just flew out the window and never came back. And I did another 40 sessions or so to make that a permanent part of my nervous system, but it's been in excess of 20 years now. And, um, and I am 
you know, depression is no longer part of any part of my reality. Wow. It's and it's. I think what people experience as depression. Um, there's a certain degree of it of de- depression we have to look upon as as sort of a a natural adaptation to certain stresses in our environment. I mean, if someone close to you dies, I should hope that you'd feel a little bummed out about it. Right. Um, and that's normal. Where it becomes abnormal is where it sticks around and and you know it's a new day and the sun's shining and the birds are singing, and enough time has passed, whatever that means, and you still you know, just can't even function, there's something wrong. Now, where we've assumed for the last few decades that this is due to biochemical, you know, imbalances and mainly due to neurotransmitter deficiencies, mostly serotonin, maybe maybe dopamine. And what's interesting is that the pharmacologic model is still couched in that assumption because that's where the money is. But that's not really where where the research has gone. And anybody bothering to look at the research understands that where it has actually gone is to what is called a cytokine model of depression, which is basically depression as a fundamentally inflammatory disorder. Mm. And they find by and large that people suffering chronic depression have inflammatory processes, whether this is a chronic infection of some sort, um, on almost any level. It could be, you know, everything from a gut infection to you know, Epstein-Barr cytomegalovirus, whatever else, uh, or it could be uh, some autoimmune thing, or chronic food sensitivity activations, you know, in the body, and, and I think that's what it was for me. Uh, I grew up in a family where everything was, you know, was bread and dairy and potatoes and, you know, whatever, and no wonder, because I have a raging sensitivity to all those things. Um, and it was ultimately, I think that neurofeedback liberated me from that depressive pattern and, and it gave my brain a great deal more robustness. It raised the stress threshold, if you will, right? It helped me redefine what I did and didn't consider stressful. And when stressors did hit me, and they did shortly after I finished neurofeedback, it was kind of interesting. The bottom of my whole life fell out from under me. I had emotions that were appropriate to what was happening, but I was able to be functional. I was able to, um, you know, still show up for my life and go to work every day and handle the things I needed to handle, and then try to deal with what was happening in my life at that time constructively uh, as much as possible. And that was really new. But one of the things that occurred around the same time is that I stumbled across this whole evolutionary idea to diet. And I was making big changes, and I was eliminating the grains, and I was eliminating, um, you know, uh, things like potatoes and, you know, and, uh, you know, starchy foods and things like that. And that, I think, was what ultimately allowed me to retain the clear benefits that I got from neurofeedback. And so I knew by hook or by crook I wanted to be part of what went on in that field. Um, and I knew that as long as I was alive and breathing, that people that came to me for help were not going to walk away suffering in the same way that they were than when they walked in the door. And I do consider the combination of something like neurofeedback and and foundational um, kind of nutritional intervention to be one of these practically foolproof kinds of things. But 
when I'm working with an individual, I really do want to know who they are, you know, where their inherent imbalances lie. Um, and so I do things like expanded functional blood chemistry, uh, you know, panels where I'm looking at, at at least 50 markers and I'm evaluating those markers from a functional perspective, not from the lab range perspective. Um, now there's the Dutch test, which is the most awesome um, approach to a steroidal hormone testing. And it's actually better than the ASI at evaluating what's happening with your adrenals and all of that, your adrenal function, I should say. And there's Cyrex labs, which may be the single most valuable thing of all is just because of the epidemic nature of autoimmunity and um, the immune reactivity to so many uh, unnatural inclusions in our di in modern diets. And so Cyrex testing, you know, can offer a full profile of what's happening with a person's immune system and what things it's reacting to and what it isn't. And you learn what the triggers are and then you can eliminate them and, um, you know, put out the fire, which is the inflammation, and, and then know how to heal the damage. Um, and, um, you know, GI panels and, and all kinds of these things. And there are any number of ways a person will... You know, the people that are kind of into the whole microbiome thing will tell you, well, it all starts with the gut and you have to start with the gut. Well, yeah, that's important, but, you know, there's the rest of your immune system. There's, I mean, there, it's, it's not all the same thing for everyone. Yeah. People tend to gravitate toward whatever worked for them. Of course. And they you know? yell at the top of the mountain. This yeah. is it. You know, exactly. Like the found, thing. This is, this is the core root of everything. It's like, well, right. that was the thing for you. Right. You know, and then someone else has a quarter and someone else has a quarter. Yeah. You know, so everything that you're saying as you're talking, I'm like, in my mind, I'm spinning this back to like uh, how it relates to, to movement and relationships. Well, of and course. And all that stuff. I'm like, oh, it's really... All those things are important, you know, and it, it's what are you lacking most in your life, right? right. You know, where, where is the deficit for you? And you, you kind of have to, you, you can do a shotgun approach to things, or you can pick one area and maybe you'll be lucky enough and that was it. Oh, it's all about heavy metals <laughs> or whatever. You know, well, you know, maybe not. It depends. And so I'm always trying to be careful to, you know, th there's that old adage that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And and we're really tempted to hone in on those on those pet areas that, that were most... Um, that we feel like we resonate with the most, but all of these areas have their importance. And I think, you know, we, we've found a million in different, in one different ways of screwing up all of them. So, you know, I learn as much as I can about a big a variety of these things. And I've been forced to, through my own quest, if you will, yeah. through the better part of my life, I've tried a lot of stuff and I've learned a lot of things that you know that worked for me and things that didn't or things that gave me uh some resources and some answers uh and i can sometimes see where you know you seem like you would really do well with that or yeah. you know somebody learns that they have pyroluria for instance and then it's all about that that's all they can see and they get on the pyroluria chat groups and you know they think it's all about that but we're always looking it's human nature to look for the thing right and it's almost never one thing. It's layers of an onion that we have to peel away. So the more we can be systematic about figuring out where the weak spots are, and the functional blood chem is one of the better ways because it can help us point, help point out where the imbalances are, and that immediately tells us, if we understand how these systems work, what we need to prioritize to restore balance. Yeah. 
And I'm all about restoring balance and not just simply, oh, you feel kind of depressed, here's some St. John's wort, that's natural. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really about figuring out, okay, what is really underlying that? And then why is that? And why is that? And why is that? Yeah. And, and, then, and then rebuilding from, from the foundation up. That's, um, that's um, we're going over the time that I, I said I'd take you, so I don't want to take you more time. But that's uh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, the way that I've recently been describing the work that I do with people, or my, my goal with it, is to help, assist, facilitate, guide people on how to fill the deficits. Yes. You know, so it's not so much when someone comes in, it's like, oh, it's the elbow thing. It's absolutely the elbow thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how's your sleep? How's your diet? What's what's your, you know, perception of yourself? How right. eager, eager are you to get up in the day? If you're not genuinely excited about waking up in the morning, why? Is that a dietary thing? Mm-hmm. Is it a job thing? Is it, a, you know, it's, 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 it, where's your place mm-hmm. in the world? Because if you do have that separation, you know, that's like, that. I think that separation is almost analogous with, or you know, leads to addiction. That feeling of I'm not a part of anything. I'm floating out into space. To me, those are the like kind of the darkest times that I experience. I experience on a, on a fairly regular basis, not in like a you know. It's it's my depression is is probably minimal in comparison to maybe what you were experiencing or what a lot of people are experiencing. But those are the moments where I can tangibly right. feel this kind of like, okay, I'm floating away. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, where, where's, where's the ground on this? Yeah, I've learned in my... Uh, I'm very foundational and very functional in my thinking. And the way I've learned to view... You know, pe- nobody ever comes in with just one symptom, right? Yeah. They've, they're depressed, they can't sleep, right? They're also a little bit anxious. Maybe they can't pay attention. Oh, by the way, I get migraines here and there. I've got, you know, this, that, and the other thing going on. And if you go to a doctor or whatever, they're going to send you to a half dozen different, you know, I have stomach, I, I don't digest well, or I have, you know, whatever, um, chronic gas and bloating, I mean, whatever, all these things. To me, what I see when, when somebody comes in with all of those symptoms are like points on a constellation. Um, and the more points on that constellation, the clearer the picture becomes of who the person is sitting in front of me and, and you know, and what it is I need to do to connect those dots and what I where I think my greatest strength lies um, you know as a researcher as well as a practitioner is I, I'm a really good dot connector mm-hmm. and a lot of that has been through my own you know kind of my own suffering and and right. all of the different things that I had to explore to get to where I am now which I'm pretty happy with um, you know w- I, I was forced to, you know, realize how all of these different things were interrelated. All the different symptoms I had. It wasn't just depression. It was a lot of other stuff, too. How it ultimately all interrelated. And we were trained that way in, with neurofeedback. That's one of the things about neurofeedback that appealed to me, is that we just basically looked at most every form of dysregulation as some form of, um, obviously, miscommunication between different regions of the brain and, and, and arousal problems. And they were just some very basic ways of, of addressing almost anything that people came in with. And it was all kind of lumped into these large categories, as opposed to like the DSM-4, the, now the DSM-5, which, you know, this getting thicker and thicker and thicker all the time, all coming crazy. up with, yeah, yeah. coming up with a whole, whole new is, that's me. illnesses. and <laughs> told def- you I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, healthy eating disorder, right? Orthorexia nervosa, that one really gets yeah. me. 
Yeah, you're, if you want, if you care about what you put in your mouth, you're insane. Right. Which you know, it's interpretable that way. I know people say, well, that's not what they intended. It 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 intends it, the intention is whatever anyone wants to make it that has a reason to make that. Right. Um, and those of us that are campaigning for for a healthier world, you know, are are at risk for being targeted for being crazy for doing that. Right. And of course, you know, I I advocate what by some people's standards are some fairly extreme things. Yeah, don't eat stuff that's not organic, that's not grass-fed. Um, you know, you, you know, don't just pick up any old condiment off the shelves. You got to learn to read labels. You got to really and everybody's like, "Well, that's so restrictive." Right. Well, you know, it's, it seems so extreme. I'm not the one that's extreme. The, the what's extreme is the marketplace. What's extreme is what we've been forced to accept as being food and and our and our most readily available options, and the impact that that's having on us as a species in terms of our health and our consciousness. Right. We have to start making some radical choices if we want the radical shift that we need in our health and in our world. So that's my bottom line. Yeah, the last analogy I've been like thinking thinking about as you're as you're saying, then we'll wrap it up. Is is thinking of um, you know like skiing and how moguls get formed. Yeah. You know? So as you're going down the mountain, you know, as you start to make these turns, everyone's okay. I'll make the turn behind him, and eventually we have these big piles of moguls. Right. You know, and that's analog to the way that we think and the way that we perceive reality, we perceive ourselves, the way we react to situations. Right. We create so, neural pathways, well-worn neural pathways. And that's right. an interesting tool for people that I haven't actually explored, and I'd be curious to explore myself and for other people, perhaps, to, of um, just something. If you don't necessarily have the necessary internal resources or external resources. It's nice to have more options of, in this case, you know, an external resource of like, right. we can maybe help mow those moguls down a little bit and mm-hmm. give you a choice. And it's, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a cool Figure out how cool to get option. off that beaten path, right? Yeah. The, the other analogy is how the street system developed in Boston. I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with that story, but if you go there, I mean, the streets are really cattywampus and all over the place and higgledy-piggledy, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to them. Yeah. And the very good reason for that is that way the streets what the streets were originally built on were cattle trails. Um, you know, cattle kind of moving through the area and whatever else, and there were these well-worn paths hmm. that were just sort of there. And so, so at some point when they developed, you know, horses and buggy, whatever, they just started paving it over. Yeah. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. And so much of what we do in our lives is just, you know, just plodding behind, you know, the the well-worn trail because it seems like the path of least resistance, but that isn't necessarily going to always lead you to the best right. and destination, now, right? <laughs> now the path of least resistance that's inherent in the infrastructure of modernity yeah. is, um, you know... It's wacko. wacko. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a scientific term for right, it, yeah. you know. Um, well, cool. Thanks so much for... Have me here is awesome. It's, Thanks for it's coming to the honor and a pleasure. The performance last night. It I'm was an awesome right performance. Now, really, I was starting to you know wonder a little bit at the beginning, but um, and you know it's it's not the kind of thing I'd normally go out of my way to watch. But I, I was so um, yeah, I, I was very impressed with your performance. Okay. I actually thought it was like wow, this is this is really impressive. I kept nudging Lisa and saying, "He's really good. This okay. is really good." You That's know, good. yeah. So. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was it was very entertaining. I feel like it'd be tough to weird you guys out, so hopefully it's pretty it. tough to weird me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how yeah. do people learn more about your work and find find you and all that? Well, uh, my primary website now is primalbody-primalmind.com, 
and um, you know if you go and you you know sign up uh, you know for well like but used to be a free newsletter I'm actually just doing shorter email blasts now because people don't want to read all you know nobody has time to read newsletters anymore and what people have have been feeding back to me is that they finding this a lot more valuable but I don't waste anybody's time. I don't spam anybody. I do, I'm very, very respectful of people's private information, and I will never, you know, abuse that. But if you want to hear about what's up and coming, and I, I'll have a new book coming out uh, around the first of the year. It's being published by Simon and Schuster, cool. uh, and I'll even give you the name. It's called Primal Fat Burner, and it's a double entendre. It's not a book about weight loss, mm. uh, but um, and. Uh, yeah, so, and I have, you know, my other books and all the uh, articles I have, I used to have my own radio show and all those, uh, all those podcasts are basically accessible free through my website. I've got a lot of articles, there are videos, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, and there's a, you know, the vast majority of everything there is, is free. So, um, I wanted to say, I, I really, I was actually surprised how much I enjoyed uh, is it Primal Body, Primal Mind? Yeah. Yeah, and because I don't usually like to read nutrition books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, because, because I feel like that information is so... I think the floor can be pulled out from under you in the nutrition world like any time. Like, oh, everything you thought is like, that's wrong. So I try to kind of play that more by feel with myself. <laughs> sure, you know? sure, yeah. Um, but the book was so much more than that. So yeah. I really I really appreciate Thank it. You. it. Thank you. Thank so. you, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, and uh, you know, and and as as time goes on, I'm just becoming, you know, ever. You, the initial draft of of Primal Fat Burner. In fact, I've become so thorough now, and so extremely, you know, careful and meticulous, and and so detailed about everything, that the original manuscript was in excess of three hundred thousand, you know, words, yes. and I had over three thousand peer-reviewed references in it, and I'd spent over a year writing and the publisher said yeah um no we can't have it over about 80,000 words well we ended up compromising it's about 95,000 but it's less than a third of what i started with mm. and um you know and so much of that is push and pull with a with a publisher in terms of what what they think is pertinent and they don't want to see too much science and too much this or that sure. and so you're you know it's a push and pull of no, 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 this fact, these facts have to be in there. This has to hold this, you know, this, this up. You can't just say that and not tell them what's behind it or give them the citation or whatever. Right. So it, it's a very interesting process working with a major publisher. Right. <laughs> but ultimately, actually, I, I, I had my last, I went through four editors. Last one was completely awesome. And we actually put together, I think, a pretty wonderful book. And it wasn't ultimately everything I wanted it to be. I was really in love with that original draft, but it's it's pretty good. Cool. So I think I think it'll make a difference in a lot of people's lives. It'll shift a lot of paradigms. And it is saying stuff it is saying some things that have never been said before. Great. So it'll rock a few boats too and I'll just have to put up with that. Radical. Over and out. Ah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Align podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your support. 
Um, jump on to the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find the blog. You can find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement. You can find podcasts, show notes, learn more about the guests and all that stuff. And uh, from there, please and thank you in advance for utilizing the affiliate uh, Amazon link on the right-hand sidebar of the blog and podcast page. Jump on there, click on that link. Anytime you buy some crap on Amazon, uh, they kick down seven odd percent towards the Align Podcast Foundation, and it is greatly, greatly helpful for the funding of the show. Thank you as well to Audible.com. That is A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com. They are the world's premier uh, organization website in uh, audiobooks. Really amazing quality. Got every freaking book you could possibly imagine. Uh, they got me through traveling through Europe, traveling through Africa, traveling all over the country, and uh, it's been been great. The book that I went with when I uh, got my, my free gift from Audible was uh, Shantaram, which is a very nice, nice story. Uh, and it is huge, which is a bonus. So no matter what size the book, it's all free. And uh, the quality is impeccable. And so, yeah, I would recommend getting on there and getting something with a whole whole lot of pages. Get your value on that thing. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. What else do we have? We have the uh, self-care kit. I hope you guys enjoy that. It is uh, on the website or Amazon. It's a hollow foam roller, screw-on lids, two different size myofascial release balls, door anchors so you can adjust the height of that band. Get your self-care practice going. Keep those tissues moving, sexy and smooth, the way they deserve. Um, thank you for reviews on iTunes. That is greatly appreciated. Helps the algorithm gods know that people are tuned into this podcast and enjoying it. Five stars. Por favor. And I think that could be it. Thank you all. I really do genuinely appreciate your support. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.